Welcome to the Cinephiliac Lounge. I'm Scott Kilroy. And I'm Pat O'Connell. We're two guys who like to talk about movies over a couple of drinks. This week, we're talking about The Outlaw Josie Wales. Pat, could you give the listeners a breakdown of the plot? Sure. The Outlaw Josie Wales. Screenplay by Philip Kaufman and Sonia Chernis. Based on the book, The Rebel Outlaw Josie Wales by Asa Earl Carter under the gnome de plume of Forrest Carter. Directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Chief Dan George, Bill McKinney, John Vernon, Sam Bottoms, Sandra Locke, Paula Truman, Will Sampson, and Geraldine Keems. Josie Wales, a Missouri farmer, is driven to revenge by the destruction of his home and the murder of his wife and young son by a band of plundering Union militants from Kansas known as the Redlegs, led by the despicable and sadistic Captain Terrell. He winds up joining a band of Confederate Missouri guerrilla fighters and forges a reputation as a legendarily fast and fearless gunfighter. At the end of the war, Josie's friend and superior, Captain Fletcher, persuades his men to surrender, having been promised by Union Senator James Lane that they will be granted amnesty. Wales refuses to surrender, and as a result, he and a wounded young recruit named Jamie are the only surviving witnesses to the betrayal and massacre of the surrendering men by Senator Lane and the Union Army. In retaliation, Josie manages to use the Gatling gun to kill many of the soldiers and redlegs in the camp before they escape. Lane convinces Fletcher to assist Captain Terrell and his men in catching and killing whales and puts a $5,000 bounty on his head. Now officially an outlaw, Josie is doggedly pursued by the Union Army and bounty hunters as he tries to flee to Texas. Despite his desire to never get too close to anyone ever again, he winds up saving and reluctantly adopting a new family of ragtag outcasts and underdogs along the way. They include an old Cherokee man named Lone Wadi, a young Navajo woman named Little Moonlight, a mangy red bone hound, a cantankerous old woman from Kansas named Granny Sarah, and her granddaughter, Laura Lee. In the film's finale, the Redlegs launch a surprise attack on the ranch left to Granny Sarah by her deceased son that the outcasts have made their new home and Wales has a final bloody showdown with their leader, Captain Terrell, to avenge his family. Now that that long summary is done, before we start actually talking about the movie, Scott, you want to talk about what we're drinking tonight? Yeah, sure. I'm drinking Knob Creek tonight. It's a uh, hundred proof bourbon. First, it had an age statement. Then they removed it, and now they put it back. So it's nine years old, and it's really good. Let me give you a little sniff and uh, a taste, and I'll tell you what I think. I get a little vanilla and a very little hint of cherry, but what I really get on this is brown sugar. It's like a sugar bomb. It almost tastes a little bit like oatmeal cookies in a way. <laughs> so, believe it or not. Anyway, what are you drinking? See, I today I have chosen, we brought it up once before, Buffalo Trace, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. I don't see a year on it. But I was looking it up, and I think it's supposed to be for seven or eight years, but there is no year on the bottle so so the color i guess it's kind of a amber color light amber color i'll say nose i'm getting uh v vanilla yeah and uh, maybe a little bit of honey so now i'm gonna dive in and actually gulp this thing mm. it's sweet but it is mellow it's kind of got a a toffee kind of flavor palette uh, I, I think uh, i'm getting uh, i'm getting um it's not very spicy. I'm getting maybe like oaky or also like a brown sugar kind of finish. 
I'm liking it so far. All right. It's an excellent choice. Well, thank you. I haven't had this one. And we think we brought it up in the previous or maybe even our first podcast. So I've had it in the back of my mind. I was trying to I think I, told you, I was trying to find something thematically for this film. And apparently Missouri now has its own brand of bourbon or there's a I'm forgetting the official. You're better at the the whiskey and bourbon talk than I am right now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so basically there is apparently officially there is a just like there's Kentucky bourbon and there is now Missouri whiskey or bourbon with its own set of rules. So I was trying to find something, couldn't find anything locally that actually came from there. And it was then I was trying to. It took me a while, but I figured out what what their whiskey they're drinking in the film. Oh, really? And it's middle of the film where he brings whiskey into the uh, Lost Lady Saloon. I caught that he calls Comanche or Comanchero brand. It's just red eye whiskey. And apparently there is a red eye whiskey. And apparently this red eye whiskey is made from in Kansas, which is the other state in this movie. And I was like, oh, that's great. Couldn't find that locally either. So I've never heard of Buffalo that. Trace. Wow. Yeah, I was looking for High West because it's it's made in Utah, and I thought you know it's it's out west that kind of covers it. I couldn't find it though. That's that's really interesting I, that uh, they used a real bourbon, huh? Well, I don't know if it's a if it's a real bourbon or I don't know the timeline or if it's mere coincidence. I, I'm not sure. All no. right, that's something we'll have to look up. What were you drinking when you watched the movie? I was drinking Knob Creek for the most part. I've been uh, really hanging on to this bottle. By the way, I gotta say. It has the most frustrating bottle to open of any liquor I've <laughs> ever drank. The little tab flies right off, and I had to get pliers. It's a nightmare. Oh, no, I was going to say, so that, that because it's kind of like Maker's Mark, where they have wax. When I bought the Buffalo Trace, I saw the Knob Creek, and I was like, oh, Knob Creek, it's 100 proof. I was like, oh, Scott's getting that. But I looked at it, I was like, that looks like a thick rubber topper. Yeah, it's... It it's a I guess it's a wax, but it feels like hard rubber. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's weird. But I was drinking this for the movie and enjoying it a lot. I, I think this is gonna become like a, a regular in my house. How about you? What were you drinking? I was finishing off the Wild Turkey one oh one because I distinctly I know that I drank Wild Turkey one oh one when I would watch my Outlaw Josie Wales laser disc back in the okay. 90s. <laughs> So I was total just like, let's just do it. Let's just do it. Let's go back to the 90s. Laserdisc, Wild Turkey 101, falling asleep, watching the movie by the end. 90s. Nice. All right. So should we just jump right into the movie? Oh, yeah. I mean, this, you know, this is, I got to tell you, this one's a tough one because I think we both love this movie so much. And I have such a history of watching this movie, so much history with this movie. And then watching it for the podcast, I just, I have more notes than we could possibly ever get to. <laughs> All right, that's great. I, I love this movie, too. I haven't seen it in a couple of years. And from literally the start of it, I was like, oh, I remember why I love this movie again. It just starts out great. The little interactions with Clint Eastwood and his son, I mean, they're on screen for maybe 30 seconds, but you see there's a bond between the two of them. And I just it just opens up the whole movie to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I One of the things, one of the notes I had to discuss was how how this film, this, this one is the fifth film that he directed and it's the second western he directed the previous western he he directed was high plains drifter 1973 and that's a very different film yeah i don't know if you remember that one that well but it's a much darker you know this movie deals with dark things and and obviously but the it, okay. high plains drifter is different 
where he just kind of appears much much like his other westerns where he just appears in a town you don't really have a sense of where he came from you kind of have a maybe have a sense of what happened to him and he's just this almost supernatural force so it's very different kind of film than this which is realistic but as you said this starts off and here is he's a he's a farmer and he's a, he has a family and you know where he comes from and you and he's he's being a he's just being a dad he's just being a normal guy he's not the typical like man with no name spaghetti western badass at the beginning of this movie he's just a regular dude i don't want to get derailed but when you brought up his son i thought that was i agree with you that's great but one of the things i realized watching the film this time around that's his real son kyle eastwood Oh, really? In the film. <laughs> yeah, that's his real son. And I had no idea. He's six years old. The thing that's weird is he does not give his own son credit in the film. He is uncredited. Well, as much as I love Clint Eastwood, and as a filmmaker and as an actor, I think he's a great guy. But when I dive into his personal life a little bit, I'm always like, yeah, I don't know about this. I mean, <laughs> he's fathered a lot of children. <laughs> With a lot of different women. Well, he's Clint Eastwood. I mean, he's a good-looking guy. I don't, you know. <laughs> it's it's just funny. I read I read an interview with him where someone asked him about that, and he said, "I don't know what to tell you. I just like kids." And I'm like, "No, you just don't like wearing rubbers." <laughs> <laughs> well, the good part in this is that he can afford them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so. It'd be a little more irresponsible if he was just a regular dude, but he's he's fucking Clint Eastwood, so he, you know. Fair him. enough. <laughs> but I derailed you. Let's get back to um, what you were saying that the beginning of the film and with his son. I just like the fact that it didn't take a lot of time. A lot of movies, I think, would have wasted a lot of time there, where you don't really need need to. You just need to show that they have a relationship. They they. They don't even really talk. They just kind of look at each other. And you could tell that there's a bond there. And then to see them literally seconds later, the, the kid's dead. You feel like your gut's, you know, pulled out of you um, just on that. And it, it kind of explains why he becomes the character he becomes. Yeah, definitely. I, as I said, he does things in this film that he, he did in later films. But for the time, in 1976, you weren't used to seeing Clint Eastwood crying or almost crying, being emotional, being human, not just a super badass 24-7 like he is in the other films. And this this is, he's ineffectual at the beginning. Like, you feel for him. It's like he, he gets knocked out. I mean, seeing this as a father, it's 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 even more tragic. It's like, if I didn't have a kid, I'd be like, oh, that that's fucked up. But when you have a kid and you're like, oh my God, if I was in a situation, the fact that he could continue after that is, it says a lot about the the man's character. I agree, and I think that's that's an interesting point. As a as a uh, parent, it definitely struck me different than I think when I was in my twenties and I first saw this. And I, like you, I was just like, "Damn, that's fucked up," and left it at that. But you see it through an older person's eyes a little bit, an old, not that much older, but a little bit older. I'm like, "Yeah, that would have killed me," you know, yeah. to witness my kids and my wife, my child and my wife die, and me not being able to do anything about it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I just wanted to say, I meant to say this earlier, but this movie, particular film, we've, the first two films we did, we happened to hit upon anniversaries, and this one is no exception. In fact, there's anniversaries all around on on this one. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. The, the film was released in 1976, which was the bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of America. 
this movie came out. This came out in 1976, so this year we don't doesn't hit exactly because this film came out June 30th, but this year will mark the 45th anniversary of the release of this film. And this film also marks a very special or personal anniversary for me because it is the 25th anniversary of me actually meeting one of my childhood heroes and all-time favorite actors slash directors, Clint Eastwood. The way this happened, I was working at St. Mark's Comics at the time, and I just happened by chance to see in the newspaper a small ad that Clint Eastwood and Richard Schickel were going to be doing a Q&A sponsored by the 92nd Street Y at the Congregation Rodef Sholem, which is a synagogue on 7 West 83rd Street. They were doing it for his biography on Clint Eastwood. I had a beg to get time off from work and ran down there. I had a very long, stressful time trying to get a ticket because I wasn't a member and I had to wait until the end to see if there were tickets available. I did. This was on Wednesday at 8 p.m. November 13th, 1996. So he did this Q&A. It was amazing. By the way, as an aside, when I was sitting there and I was literally at the edge of my seat, like, I can't believe the stuff that's coming out of Clint Eastwood's mouth. This is so great. And I, I looked around me and there was like a dude reading like a magazine and people half paying attention. <laughs> like, I almost didn't get in here. And you guys are like, just like, don't even I, like, I don't know if they expected him to reenact scenes of his films. I don't know. They were it was a bizarre crowd. Anyway, at the end of at the end of this awesome Q&A. They, they said they were going to have a book signing. And so I was excited. I'm like, sure, I'm going to go. I, 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 and I brought eight by tens with me. I was like, I got to have an outlaw Jersey Wales photo. I got to have a man with no name photo of like a dirty hair. So I'm waiting online. At some point, I wasn't the only person who had this idea. So they started going up and down. I was like, only the book will be signed. Nothing else. You can hear the crowd just, oh, man. But I'm like, okay, whatever. I get online. I have my book. And, you know, Richard Schickel signs I finally. And then I finally get up to the man, the myth, the legend himself and I'm in front of him. And I can't contain myself. I'm total fucking fanboy. <laughs> and I just I didn't lose my shit. But obviously, like I was I was like, I couldn't just had to say how he's one of my all time favorites, actors and directors. And I said something along the lines. I, like, I just think that you're one of the coolest guys on the planet. And <laughs> he looks up and he's smiling. He says, oh, the whole planet, huh? I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Could, could you please make this out to? And as soon as I said, could you please make this out to the the people that you know running the the, the show and the signing, or whatever? Like, no, 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 uh, no personalizations. There's no time. And there's you know. And I'm like, oh, uh, all right, okay. And I just kind of resigned myself. I'm like, and I was about to like go get the. I was like, okay. And I was waiting for him. I was going to grab the book. And he stopped. And just just thinking about this gives me goosebumps. He looked me dead in the eye. Clint Eastwood, and he said, like, he, he just, like, everyone shut up. And he, he said, what's your name, son? I was like, <laughs> get the fuck out of here. Like, I was just, like, uh, I just, like, could, I fucking shat my pants with joy. I was like, what? Clint Eastwood, fucking Clint Eastwood just said, What's your name, son? To me, to me personally. <laughs> I, I said Pat. He uh, and I was like, holy fucking shit! He did it, and it was it was great. There was interaction. I and it was just made. I'm sure there's more, but um. So that was that was That's... the thing. The the fact that. I had Clint Eastwood actually say that to me. It was just uh, today. I'd have it on like my cell phone, or whatever. But this was 1996, so 
It's all recorded in my own memory. Oh, that's awesome. That is so awesome. I love that story. Well, thank you. But the, the movie, separate of that, the movie was a critical and commercial success. It has a 90% freshness rating and 92% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb. So we're not the only ones who think this movie is great because it's fucking great. But when, when, do you remember where and when you first saw this film? I don't remember exactly i i probably saw bits of it on tv because i have a recollection of seeing certain scenes and it must have been on on tv at some point i must have seen some of it but then i remembered i rented it because i was like that looked really cool i want to see the rest of this so i don't know sometime in the 80s probably on vhs on a crappy copy that my local video store had but it, it was I mean, even not letterboxed and seeing it in TV, TV, it was still a great looking movie. I mean, the, the cinematography on this is fantastic. Yeah, Bruce Surtees did it. He did many films with Clint Eastwood and Mal Paso. It's very good. I also, my recollection, I, I definitely, the first time I saw this movie was on network television as well, probably around the same time you did. I know that back in the day before my family finally got a VCR, that that's the only way you either went to the movie theater or you waited for network television before cable and VHS. So that's what we did. I, I remember, I remember distinctly, I would get excited to get the, the actual physical TV guide every week. Cause I could go through it and look <laughs> to see what movies might be playing on what day. But Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson, they were an O'Connell family staple and favorite. So anytime a movie starring them came on, the entire family would watch it. I mean, my sister was very little. She probably doesn't remember that. But definitely my mother and my father were huge fans. So I've never seen this movie on the big screen. And that hopefully that will be remedied at some point in my life because I would really love to see this movie on the big screen. Oh, yeah. So would I. That's funny you mentioned that because I had the kind of opposite situation. We didn't have a VCR for a very long time. We were very late to the VCR game. But my mother hated me watching anything violent on TV. And so luckily she didn't pay attention a lot to what I was watching on TV. <laughs> so I would watch stuff and then she would come in the room and be like, what is this? And she would literally just shut the TV up and be like, you're not watching this. And I'm like, but, but, oh, that sucks. but you know, it was death wish. And I, you know, I, <laughs> Charles Bronson is, you know, and, and uh, so that was a big thing with me. So when we got the VCR, then I was able to just stay up late because my mother was a late, uh, really like kind of early riser, early, early to bed, early to rise. And I would just have to wait till like nine, nine thirty, and she'd be out. And I'd be like, all right, now I'm putting in whatever, you know, I'm putting in clockwork orange. That's <laughs> awesome. So good. One thing I wanted to mention, not to jump all over the place, but just, I, I think you can't talk about this movie without at least it, talking about the fact that the author of the book it was based on oh, yeah. was pretty much out of his mind. Yeah. Asa Earl Carter was his real name, and I have the controversial author is what I wrote in my notes. Why was he <laughs> controversial? And the next oh. sentence is such an understatement of, of why. He was a pro-segregationist -segrega leader in the KKK. He wrote yeah. this book book under the name Forrest Carter, who he claimed was a Cherokee. Right. All of this came out after the movie was made, from what I understand. Yeah. And they were like Warner Brothers and Clint Eastwood and the producers and everyone was like, holy shit, we got to distance ourselves from this guy majorly. Just want yeah. to cover that. <laughs> yeah. Not only 
was he a member of the KKK? I think I read somewhere that he was in a especially radical member of the segment. I don't know how more radical you can be. Maybe that's not the word I was looking for. But he also was the speechwriter for George Wallace. Yep. And he's the one that wrote the famous line of his speech, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Yeah, not a good guy. Yeah, anti-Semite as well. So what's very insane is that this person wrote the original source novel, which inspired this really beautiful, magnificent film. The messages in the film are antithetical to everything that that man apparently stood for in real life. It's just, it's, it's absolutely bizarre. And I read a portion, chapter 11, of the Clint Eastwood biography by Richard Schickel that I bought and on the day of my anecdote 25 years ago. Great book, by the way. Are you, you've read it? Yeah, I read it. As I couldn't put it down. Fantastic. It's so chock full of information. I reread chapter 11, Labor of Love, which was a recounting of the time of him filming and doing Outlaw Jersey Wales. And I came across, he was such a psychopath. The movie was, it was a blind submission. He put in this book, uh, The Rebel Outlaw Jersey Wales. Robert Daly, the producer, picked it up one day because he had nothing to read for dinner, read it, said this book has so much soul to it. You should look at it. They buy it. They pay him $25,000 up front, $10,000 for when production starts and promise more later. And the thing that struck me is, so he calls Robert Daly up and says, hey, I'm going to be in your guys' neighborhood. I was wondering if you, you know, if I could meet you. And Robert Daly goes on to talk about in the book that in the neighborhood meant he was going to Texas and they're in California. Like, so this guy is just out of his mind. It's, it's like, yeah, okay, sure. He doesn't go on the, pl- he doesn't show up on the plane when they send their guy to meet him because he's got drunk and got thrown in jail. He comes the next day. The guy picks him up. He's pissed drunk. He takes, they go to a bar. He goes to call Robert Daly. And he almost gets arrested again because Isaac Carter is pissing in the middle of the bar. And he, oh like, the, he tells the p- police, this is my father. I'm sorry. I'll take care of it. They get him away. He sees Robert Daly the next day. He's dressed all in cowboy regalia. He starts his conversation with, I, I think I've taken enough of your time. I'm going to head on home. And Robert Daly's like, wait, what? We didn't even <laughs> talk about like the book or anything. So he convinces him to stay another day, and he sets up a dinner that he couldn't attend for whatever reason, and this is the part I want to get to. The same guy that they had, the bodyguard guy, driver that they had pick him up from the airport, goes with two secretaries from El Paso, and they go to dinner, or they have a dinner date. He shows up at the dinner date, pissed drunk, and apparently at some point during the dinner, he takes out a knife and holds it to one of the secretary's throats. And says that he's in love with her and that he'll kill him and her both if she doesn't agree to marry him. Oh, my God. I totally forgot about that. (laughs) I was like, what? What? So that's before they even got to the anti-Semitism, the KKK, the George Wallace speech. So absolute nut job yeah i you know as you were saying it 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 registered in my head like i'm like oh yeah i I remember reading about this i totally forgot about how nuts he was that's hilarious but he turned out this novel that inspired once again this beautiful film that we're speaking about today the outlaw josie wales yeah let's talk about the film (laughs) rather than the (laughs) 
than the the nutty author. Yes. So a couple of things I wanted to mention was I, Chief Dan George, who plays Lone Wati. Wati. Yep. I read an interview with him where he claims, and I, I don't, I think this is debatable, but I thought it was an interesting thing that he claimed anyway. That this was the first time a Native American was allowed to have a sense of humor in a Western. I, I In my notes, I certainly had that what makes this film different than previous Westerns is that the, the representation of Native Americans, not only are they anti-cliche, they're not just stoic and silent or childlike or total savages. They're three-dimensional human beings with humor, which I don't recall I don't recall seeing in anything. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was a statement that seemed, it seemed so kind of grandiose that I was like, that can't be true. But then I I couldn't think of any example to say, no, he was wrong. I mean, he, he could be right. Yeah, I looked, I couldn't find anything that would, if there was a comedy before that, I'm sure that if the, if the comedy came from an Indian character, it was probably played by an Italian or a white actor or not a Native American. So I'm inclined to believe that without even researching it. Okay. I thought his character was great. I thought his acting was really good. And I I really just, he seemed like a guy I wanted to spend more time with. You know what I mean? Oh, he's fantastic. I mean, Clint Eastwood obviously loved him to death. I think you watched the same documentary I did, Hell Hath No Fury, that's on the DVD. Okay, yeah. And he goes into it a little bit. In the book by Richard Schickel, that chapter, it said something that I didn't remember. He claims that when he first met Chief Dan George, he was completely dressed in a suit. Like, he had white suit, white shirt, white tie. Like, he was this is completely dressed in white. And he apparently had some Swedish chick companion with him that was, like, taller than him. And during the filming of the, the movie... There were a couple of days where it was obvious where he was 77 at that at this right. point. So he's running around with some Swedish chick and doing this movie and apparently like going out with her at nights and like dancing like the man was amazing. Yeah, I just want to mention if anybody listening to this wants to just have a good time and just read about something kind of cool, look up Chief Dan George. Just do a Google search on him. You'll find some really interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely cool. He's he's he damn near steals. He pretty much steals the picture. Yeah, he he's just great. I mean, all, the whole cast is pretty good. And I, I got to admit something that Sandra Locke, not I'm not the biggest fan of. Kind of accepted that she was a package deal with Clint when Clint Eastwood was in a movie. More often than not, she was going to pop up in it, and that's okay. I thought she was very good in this. Yeah, I mean, I think this was her second film. I'm forgetting the name of the first film, but I thought she was. I thought she was quite good. She was well cast. She fit what the character was supposed to be. I think once again, there's so many notes and there's so many things to talk about this film and the pre-production and production of this film is equally as fascinating. Uh, and compelling as the fantastic film itself. Philip Kaufman was supposed to, he wrote the screen, co-wrote the screenplay. He He's the one who added the fact that dude, Sonia Chernis, just, she adapted the book. And in the book, the red legs are not in throughout the entire story. And one of the things that, that Kaufman did was he made the pursuit by the red legs go throughout the entire film to keep up the suspense and drama and reach to a gratifying conclusion. But he was also supposed to direct the film he did he scouted locations he did all the pre-production and then apparently and the reason why i'm bringing this up is apparently and when i read the read the chapter in the book he was just moving too slow for clint's comfort level because clint he put up the money to for the the book rights himself and he was the producer 
and he just thought he was just taking too long. And they were trying to set up a shot for, I think, the Comanche with Josie coming up on the Comanche raid on the Kansas grandma and Granny Sarah and Laura Lee and Phil Kaufman. Apparently he called it a Captain Queeg incident where he was obsessed with, he wanted to put the camera in a certain place and he had, he had left a container of beer can on the location for where he wanted it. And it with wind or whatever, it disappeared. And he was obsessed with finding the X mark they had left. And Clint just shot the scene himself and decided like, this guy's got to go. Something else, I read something else, and it kind of alludes to that. It also may have been that both Philip Kaufman and Clint were kind of vying for Sandra Locke's affections. I read about that, too. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Obviously, Clint won that one. He won that one. Oh, He won that, but he, he had to pay for He literally had to pay for it because there's now something in the Directors Guild of America. He got fined $60,000 for doing this, and yep. now there's the Eastward Clause or something, right? <laughs> Where you... If you're working on a film, you can't fire the director and then take over, right? Yeah, that's what, it, that's what it says. And I got to say, how cool is that? You have a clause, like you have a rule in the in the Director's Guild about something you did. Specifically. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically. Don't fucking pull an Eastwood. Do not pull it fucking Eastwood. The Eastwood clause. So good. Uh, so funny. Yeah, I read a little bit about that, too. Really interesting. It, it, it sounds like they just were not going to see eye to eye on how the film was going to be made. And, you know, the proof is Clint did a great job. The film looks great. It's edited well. It's got good acting in it. Terrell comes off as just, a, just such an amazing jackass that <laughs> I don't think anyone in the world was siding with him on this <laughs> <laughs> this movie. There were a couple of things I did want to bring up that I thought were re really interesting. You talk about meeting Clint Eastwood and getting to say what you you know you wanted to say to him, and that's awesome. I'm going to admit something. I'm going to put myself on the line here. I've imagined meeting Clint Eastwood myself. <laughs> oh, you've imagined meeting him? Yes, I've imagined what I've wanted to say to him. And what it basically comes down to is... I think The Outlaw Josie Wales and Unforgiven, people will be watching these two films in a thousand years from now. Oh, agreed. Oh, I agree. They're very they're very connected. And I think it's in the documentary where Clint Eastwood says that he feels he feels like it's one of the best things he's ever done. And he said that if it had been released at the time that Unforgiven had been released, he thought that it would receive just the same amount of attention and accolades. I, I don't doubt that for a second. I mean, I also found it really interesting that um, you have Jamie Wolvett as the Schofield kid in Unforgiven, and he looks like Sam Bottoms in the oh, yeah. Josie Wales. Josie Wales. I mean, he looks like the same guy. You're right. I mean, they even have similar mannerisms. It's When I saw Unforgiven for the first time, it actually freaked me out because I was like, that guy's got to be old now. <laughs> That's, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but you're, abs you're absolutely right. Yeah, I... I thought it was Sam Bottoms is the same. I thought it was the same actor, uh, and I couldn't understand why he didn't age like the rest of us. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I don't think he got to age that much at all. I think Sam Bottoms left us quite early. I think you're right. Yeah, he did, um, and he was anything that I saw him in. He was really good. Yeah, I and I mean, he just he has that line that he just says, "We whipped him again, J uh, Josie." Whipped him again, Josie. It was a, no wait. It's whipped him again, didn't we, Josie, or something? Yeah, like that, right? yeah, you're right. Whooped him again, didn't we, Josie? This movie is so chock full of memorable lines 
and infinitely requotable lines. There are some lines in there that have absolutely become part of my everyday lexicon. And I use when the senator is telling Fletcher that, oh, you know, the old adage of to the victor go the spoils. And Fletcher says, there's an old saying, Senator, don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. Well, I want to talk about the scene kind of two thirds into the movie a little later, the saloon scene. But that has the great line of Diane's not much of a living boy. Yeah. All right, so you're going to pull them pistols or whistle Dick Dixie? I can't say Dixie for some reason. Yeah, no, absolutely filled with amazing, unbelievable quotes. The other thing I noticed, going back to Unforgiven, they have a couple of scenes that are almost identical. You have the target practice scene after Josie Wales' family is killed and he's trying to fire the gun and, and hit. Oh, that's right. And it's almost, it looks shot for shot, very similar to Unforgiven, except for Unforgiven, it's kind of played for laughs, where in Outlaw Josie Wales, it's it's dead serious. I mean, he, he just, he's missing <laughs> and he needs to be accurate. That's that's a great point. That's a great, I you know, I didn't think of that. It, uh, you're right. I, I feel like in Unforgiven, it is played for laughs. In Josie Wales, it's not only it's important to show that, I mean, he literally, the, the red legs, they, they come, they attack the house. I know we're a little bit all over the place, <laughs> non-linear here, but when you're saying with it, with it, we were talking at the very beginning of this, his son and how great the interaction is, and seconds later, he's dead. He's dead because the red legs and Captain Terrell have attacked his home and burnt his house down and killed his wife played by Sissy Wellman, the daughter of famous director William Wellman. And literally in the ashes of his life, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, he goes through and he finds his Colt 1860 army Colt. I love how everyone is armed to the teeth in this movie. It's not not like just like, I've just, I have one like side holster. Like people have guns everywhere, which is fucking great. Because if I was living in that time, I'd be fucking armed to the teeth too. Oh, totally. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Josie Wales has... That I counted, I think, four guns on him easily. Maybe yeah. more. Well, yeah, no, he has four guns. He has he has the eighteen sixty army army revolver that he takes from the ashes and practices with. His his double holster with those 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 guns are fucking huge. They're like right. as big as my fucking forearm. And those are two Colt Walker eighteen forty sevens. Those things are fucking gigantic. And then he has one shoulder holster. Which I think is fucking great. He has a, a Colt 1849 pocket gun. The other thing he has is a Sharps 1865 sniper rifle with full-length brass tube target scope, which is what he uses to shoot the ferry line to give the Red Legs a Missouri boat ride. But in any case, that scene when he's doing that in Outlaw Jersey Wales, the editing sets up something that is the motivating factor and is important throughout the entire film. There's a sequence where he's shooting. And in, he, there's a shot of, you know, close up of him shooting, then a shot of his destroyed home, then a closer shot of him shooting, a shot of the grave where he put his wife and, and son, him shooting, and then a shot of what the, the field mule, who's now alone and left, the field's left because Josie Wales is no longer a farmer. He's become something else. And it's, it encapsulates the trauma that motivates his actions throughout the entire film and his inability to really kind of totally settle in and reintegrate himself fully with society because of that one incident. He's a damaged man from that. And and, it, and it's brilliantly encapsulated in, in the edits in that sequence, which is serious and used for laughs in its counterpart in Unforgiven. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think it's hard. I, I think sometimes it's harder 
to talk about a movie you love because there's so many Weird. little things that pop up in your head that you're like, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. And I think that's why we're a little all over the place tonight. I agree. Uh, and and I have to – uh, there was a part of me that was uh, – I was a little nervous about it because this movie is so important to me. There are other movies that are, you know, just as important. But this one was like really – it was like really special. And the things that we – you know, I love 12 Monkeys, whatever. But this one was a little bit harder because 12 Monkeys I saw as an adult. I've, right. I've lived and loved the Outlaw Jersey Whale since I was a, you know, knee-high to a June bug. <laughs> so it's just this history and there's this um sense of obligation to the film oh yeah to me Allo Josie Wales is one of those movies that's just perfect because it works just as popular entertainment you could go watch this on a superficial level and have a great time if you're not looking for anything deep or meaningful in it it's still a fun movie but if you do look a little deeper and you'll try to pick out themes that are in it it works on that level too oh yeah this this movie is so rich in its themes and symbolism josie wales at the beginning of the film captain terrell the thing that knocks him out he gets he gets hit in the head pretty hard as he's trying to get to to the house and he's hearing his son Kyle like, Pa, Pa, you know, save me, Pa. And he's in the fire and he's trying to get to him. He gets knocked in the head and then Terrell slices him on the face with his saber. And that's a scar that he carries throughout the film. And it's a it's a scar that's like in most in many movies, the physical scars are symbolic of emotional ones. So Josie's scar is symbolic of his emotional scarring for what happened to his family. And it's also mirrored in Little Moonlight because when you see her at the trading post and the two guys who two two guys who figure out that it's Josie Wales looking to, t- to ask about a horse and get him, they mention like, oh, she has a she has a scar on her nose. That means she's she she likes the the young bucks or whatever. So so she this notion of of us of scars emotional scars being represented by physical ones or happened in the film often by the way just off the cuff great mention so john mitchum robert mitchum's brother is one of those guys that are in the trading post is like this is him mr is it the one that are all scared about mr josie wells mr chain blue lightning himself <laughs> that's mitchum's uh, brother and he's within a lot of the people in this film are guys you will see in many other malpaso and clint eastwood films because he plays a recurring character in Dirty Harry. Oh, really? Yeah, he's in three of the Dirty Harry films as a detective. Bill McKinney's in plenty of other Clint Eastwood films, and and so is the guy who plays the carpetbagger. Oh, that guy we should talk about. That guy was special. <laughs> They're all great. Uh, Woodrow Parfrey plays the carpetbagger. He's fantastic. I think he plays the... He's in a lot of 70s movies and 60s movies. I think he's the guy that in Dirty Harry... Dirty Harry goes into the the diner, and he's like, "I'll have my usual." He's like, "Oh, you want your usual lunch or your usual dinner?" And he's like, "What does it matter? It's the same." And he goes to get him the hot dog. Okay. Same guy. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, that's funny. Actor. I didn't really have I, I didn't have anything amazing to say about it. I just thought he was a great character, and just the fact that he's trying to sell Josie Wales on a miracle cure all tonic, and that scene where he spits on him, he goes, "How's it do for cleaning?" <laughs> yes. That bit is hilarious when Josie spits his dip in tobacco on him. You know, we should talk about the importance of the choice of tobacco use in this film. One of the many different things about this film is that Clint Eastwood, known for Man With No Name, where he, he smoked his cigar, and so cigars were a staple. And in this film, he did something very different, which I don't think he ever replicated, where Josie Wales is into cha chewing tobacco. And there are many scenes of 
Josie spitting tobacco juice. Clint Eastwood says for for this film, spitting is a political and social statement. He spits in the face of death and life because he's angry. When he talks about spitting, the thing I was also fascinated with is, along with me trying to research the guns, the very end, the credit sequence of the Helen Hath No Fury documentary, Eastwood reveals the choice of chewing tobacco brands that he used, depending on the kind of scene that they would be shooting at that day. So he said that the brand Day's Work, chewing tobacco was the toughest in the world. For rough scenes with only one take, you took this one. You used Red <laughs> Man if you needed multiple takes. Okay. And if you had a scene you knew you needed multiple takes and angles, then you stick with Beech Nut. I did read somewhere that he hated chewing tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must not have been good if you swallow it by mistake. Ugh, I can't uh, imagine. Neither can I. But Clint is as much of a badass with chewing tobacco as he was with the Cherut Cigar in Man With No Name. By the way, there's another character who's also a badass, who smokes a pipe. Makes me think of fucking Granny Hawkins, who's the fucking shit. Granny Hawkins is so great in this movie. Oh, yeah. I can't even take it. You want to talk about her first? Well, no, we'll say, so they arrive at that part of the film we're trying to talk about because the senator betrayed the guys who went in and killed them. Jamie gets shot in the back trying to warn Fletcher. Fletcher, it's a trap. He gets shot. And then he tells Josie that Fletcher was in on it because Josie was a guy with a death wish. He's like going to like he was going to stay there and just shoot him until he was killed because Jamie's like, you can't get him all. He's like, that's a fact. He's like, what are you doing it for? He's like, got nothing better to do. When he tells him that Fletcher was in on it, that's when Josie Wales like, OK, and they they split. They wind up at the the granny hawkins place and they're gonna pay sim carstairs who is the ferryman and he's with the carpetbagger who has the major best major best secret elixir that throughout the entire <laughs> film he tells you you know it's the snake oil that gets rid of all this shit and he gets stuff from granny hawkins who's awesome it's like you can pay me when you see me again josie Welsh. and when they're crossing the river the carpetbagger is trying to say hey this is the best thing for your friend and as you were saying he's the carpetbagger tells him all this bullshit he's wearing that white suit and josie Wales is like well, it spits on him and says how is it with stains <laughs> i bring this all up again to circle back and elaborate on the importance of having Josie chew tobacco instead of smoking it. Spitting is not merely used for comedy in this film, although it's used very well in that respect. It is a motif that is used for symbolism and characterization as well. Not only does Josie Wales spit on everything, like fallen opponents when he kills the bounty hunters, he'll spit on their head, but he'll he'll spit on bugs or scorpions, that red red bone mangy hound he spits on the head all the time, or anyone that's you know annoying, he spits on hypocrisy like the cheating carpetbagger. The, the spitting is great. It's also like a nervous tick. Right before he's going to go into battle, he'll spit. But, the, you know, the thing with the dog is amazing because the dog didn't do anything, but he's so damaged and bitter. He just, he hates man's best friend because he <laughs> hates man at that point. So every time he sees him, he's like, oh, fuck you. And he spits on him. And it, it's great. But talking about the carpetbagger, it reminded me of another recurring theme in the movie where there's always North versus South old adages or old sayings. So the center says, Did Victor, go to spoils. And Fletcher's like, don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. The carpetbagger, once they get across the river and he sees that the red legs are right on, across the river and the ferryman's like, oh, I, I'm going to try and make like something. I'll make do something's wrong and try to give him time. And they're like, oh, he's not going to hold off. You know, right. he's going to tell the authorities. 
and the carpetbagger who's now using this is the greatest part the major best secret elixir to try to wash out the fucking tobacco stain that Josie Wales has put on his white carpetbagger jacket and he's like oh there's no way you could take out all those men before they get to you there is such a thing in this country known as justice and oh he's like do you really think you can shoot all those men before they shoot you oh no Mr. Josie Wales there is such a thing in this country called justice and Josie Wales is like well Mr. Carpetbagger we've got something in this terri- territory called the Missouri Boat Ride. And then he shoots the line with the sniper rifle that I was talking about. It's great stuff. I was going to say, and I love the fact that he later in the movie, he shows up again and outs Josie Wales to that town. And it's like, oh God, someone just shoot this guy. I just want to see him dead on the ro- on the floor. Yeah, he's he's a complete asshole. He's completely unlikable. Typical of the time racist is when when he's selling the fucking major best secret elixir in the in the town and sees Lone Wadi. He's like, oh, you're an Indian. Well, you must have trouble holding your liquor. This is the best thing. Right. But yeah, those guys are all great. And the movie, the script is so tight because there are a lot of things that are brought up, like the carpetbagger, and there's a callback to it. Things come full circle. You kind of get a call and response to things where something happens and then you get some, the, the flip side of it later in the film. It's very evenly balanced in that way. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I was going to mention, I meant to mention this when we were talking about Unforgiven. I'm just going to bring it up now, though. Both movies have the question to Clint Eastwood's character, who did you know was going to shoot first? Oh, wow. See, you, my friend, <laughs> all these awesome parallels. I did not catch that. After seeing Unforgiven and all this time going past, stuff like that just I totally jumped up. I was like, wait a second. There's got to be something behind that. Yeah. And it, it's Lone Walkie who who asks him, who? how did you know who was going to shoot first? And Josie Wales has a really good answer to that. But I have to say, in Unforgiven, he has an even better answer, which was, I know who I'm going to shoot last. <laughs> that's right anyway that was just something i wanted to mention that i thought was really interesting about the movie oh no definitely no i, I think you know it goes to what you were saying that those two films really pair well and complement each other they should be a double bill at any retrospective oh absolutely that would be great i would go see that in a second yeah all right we'll get on the phone to film forum tomorrow yeah i'll, <laughs> I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll talk to i'll talk to bruce <laughs> bruce Bruce, listen to me. I got I got something great for you. It's called Major Best Secret Elixir. <laughs> oh, so I wanted to bring up one thing about the movie that this to me sums up the whole movie is about two thirds into the movie, the saloon scene. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to me. It's the one part of the movie that actually it starts out with the classic saloon doors, you know, that swing both ways. Mm hmm. And it's like the one part of the movie where I feel like they were like, okay, we're making a Western, but we're we're kind of subverting it a little bit. Here's your traditional Western for you if you want if you want that so much. And that's when the bounty hunter comes in, he gets intimidated by Clint Eastwood, he leaves, and then he comes back and he says, I had to come back. That works on the level of the movie. Yes, he had to come back. It works on the level of personality. He just wouldn't be able to live with himself. But it also works works on like this kind of subtext of this is what you're expecting in a Western. Definitely. I mean, you know, this movie, in a lot of ways, it is a revisionist Western. And it is, it is at its heart, it has pacifist 
subtext to it. Clint Eastwood admits it. And it has both religious and political allegories. One of the political allegories, one of which at the time it was very much about the betrayal of American trust because of the Vietnam War and the betrayal of trust because of Watergate. But Clint has said, and I agree with him, this has to do with, you know, it's an anti-war film in general. And he does this thing where it's a pacifist. He does, he does, his, he does have a pacifist subtext where, as you said, Clint says, you, we don't have to do this. So it does that. But then it does give you, as you said, the conventional, traditional, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. Yeah. And it's just, you know, we're going to have a showdown. Gotta have a classic showdown. I love that part of the movie. Like, to me, that sums up the whole movie because it's just an amazing scene. And it's just, you could see Josie Wales is tired at this point. He doesn't want to keep doing this. I mean, that's what I took away from it, of that. It's not that he cared about that guy or he didn't want to kill him. He's just, I'm done. I've done a lot of shit. And I don't want to kill you if I don't have to. Oh, I agree. I agree. I think that scene comes before the 10 bear scene where he kind of, it, it, you see that he's trying to settle down or he's, as you said, he's, he's getting tired. But speaking about that now legendary famous scene in this movie of dying at much of a living boy, it reminds me of this movie has, as I said before, it has religious and political allegories or metaphors or, or themes in the film and dying reminded me of what I, I want to talk about the very beginning of the film when he has to bury his wife and six-year-old son and he stamps in the wooden cross that's tied together by leather straps and he collapses on the cross and he just he starts crying and he pushes the the cross to the ground so it's a slanted cross and having watched it so many times i was like oh you know i thought it was i was i always wondered if it was it was this an impulsive show of anger just an emotional outlet or and then watching this film like is is he denouncing god like he never fixes the cross in the later scene we see bloody bill right up to him it's still an x in the ground so i just had it in my head watching it for this podcast when i was researching i'm like you know, this really, this really just seems important to me. I mean, it, it could very well have just been, like I said, that you know, Clint Eastwood's like, oh, it's just an emotional outlet. He does it, but it seemed more important to me, so I looked it up. And a tilted cross is known as a Saint Andrew's cross, which is a heraldic symbol. So the X on the Confederate flag, the X on the British Union Jack, and countless other flags are a Saint Andrew's cross. And I was like, okay, so there's the Confederate flag connection. But I was like, I feel like there's something more. And so as I read this whole thing, because, you know, there's a subtext in the film, like Josie Wales, he's always associated with verbiage or imagery of hell or being more than a man. But he's not supernatural. But in any case, I read that some consider a tilted horizontal cross to be a symbol that represents the human race or humanity as being positioned right in the middle between heaven and hell. And when when I read that, something went off in my head. I'm like, heaven and hell and referencing it is a theme throughout this entire film. There are constant references to hell or being in hell or Josie represented as being in hell or from hell in the dialogue. The center says, houndless whales, the kingdom come, the biblical imagery. He'll have to run for it now. And hell is where he's headed. And right. Fletcher says, he'll be waiting for us there, Senator. So he's saying he's in hell, right? And then Jamie tells Josie he's feeling better after they shoot the first set of Bounty Hunters, Len and Lige. Oh, by the way, I want to give a shout out to Len Lesser, who plays Abe in this film, but he's Uncle Leo in Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I totally re- 
I did not recognize that until you said it. <laughs> and his delivery, by the way, his del- uh, just going about this theme, but just a just shout out to uh, Len Lesser. His delivery as Abe is just amazing. Like, he's like, you're a real bush hog, ain't you, Mr. Josie Wells? And he's just <laughs> like, he's fucking hilarious. And his the way he enunciates and speaks in this film is great because he also says something like, Un- you know, unbuckle those pistols. And he's just like, ease them pistols out nice and so, so I can cut the hairs on that their hand. He is amazing in this movie, and it's ridiculous. But right after they take care and they shot Uncle Leo from fucking Seinfeld, tries to shoot Josie Wales, Jamie tells Josie that he's feeling better, you know, because he's been shot. And he's like, oh, he's like, good, because I ain't hauling you all over hell's creation, dribbling blood over half of Missouri. So right. the earth is hell's creation. And then Lone Wadi, when they're when he's captured by the Camancheros and Josie Wales is going to save them because they try to rape Laura Lee and, and they have Granny and and Lone Wadi uh, captive. Lone Wadi turns to Granny Sarah and says, get ready, little lady. Hell is coming to breakfast. So Josie Wales is always associated with hell. Granny, when she describes her homestead in Blood Butte near Santa Rio, the flip side is she describes it as a regular paradise we're headed to. And then when Josie Wales brings in the Comancheros when he goes to get a drink, like, oh, we haven't had, we ran out of the whiskey, then we ran out of beer, we ain't got anything. And he brings in the case of the Comancheros brand of red-eye whiskey into the totally dry Lost Ladies. And the bartender, Kelly, played by Matt Clark, yells, Angels of Mercy have come to Santa Rio. So it just... It, it fluctuates. Wow. He's either, yeah, and, and Granny's prayer towards the end of the film, she says, Pa and Daniel died at the hands of that low-down murderous trash out of hell. But then she also says, thanks a lot for Josie Wales, who you changed from a murdering bushwhacker on the side of Satan to a better man. So the entire movie, dialogue and people equate Josie Wales with both heaven and hell, like humanity, like the Tilted Cross. Wow. And there's your thesis, man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's so many there's so many other things I mean the dialogue always equates Josie with animals or since he's a force of nature he's called a, a rattling twice of as fast he's called a bush hog he's called a ch- he's called chain blue lightning he's always associated with nature and then there's another very important theme throughout the entire film and part of the plot the theme of family not by blood but by bond because right josie wales loses his wife and son but he, he he not only becomes a father figure to jamie he also becomes somewhat of a son to the chief lone wadi and Lone Wadi lost, he says, he lo- he lost his two sons and wife on the Trail of Tears. But he gets Little Moonlight and he gets Josie as replacement. And Granny Sarah loses her husband, who's her son, and her brother. But she gets Josie Wales and invites the rest of the crew to live with her. Most of the townsfolk from Santa Rio. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how, in a way, it's, I mean, I kind of feel like it's, it's pulling Josie Wales all over the place because he wants to be this loner who just goes out and all he does is kill the people that have hurt him. But these other people just keep getting attached to him and you can see why it pulls him back and forth between the two. The next morning he sees Lone Wadi sleeping and he's got this, this dog, the red bone mangy dog that showed up out of nowhere. And he wakes up and he's like, hey, chief, I suppose that mangy red bone hound has no place to go either. He might as well ride with us. Hell, everybody else is. Right. <laughs> like I said before, this movie is chock full of them. Yeah, it's um, it's an amazing film. And I'm sorry we're all over the place tonight, but it's kind of hard not to be with this film. No, listen, it's I'm all over the place, too. Like I said, it's very important to the two, to the both of us. And it's so great. And it's so dense. And it's so, so good. <laughs> That's what's 
that that's part of the problem. So I wanted to ask you about something towards the end of the film, if you think we're at that point. So there's a couple of little themes that I want to talk about. While Josie Wales is feared and always called a bloodthirsty killer, and, and at the beginning he's bitter and traumatized anger man, he can't resist doing the right thing and helping people in need, which goes to like, he's sort of like an angel and a devil. But he is a positive influence and a positive energy because the thing I find I found really interesting watching at this time that Lone Wadi, he reconnects with his Indian spirituality and remembers the forgotten ways of his youth and his people because of Josie Wales. After he meets him and they have that conversation, and Josie Wales, who doesn't trust anyone, Lone Wadi pulls a gun on him. He talks to him for a little bit, and he's so comfortable, he just goes into a corner and falls asleep. But as he sleeps, you see that in that meeting, he the chief connects with him so much that he takes the stovepipe hat and the frock coat that's supposed to be what the Indi- civilized Indian wore, would wear, and he burns it. And then he starts to rediscover himself and his power and he when Josie wakes up he's like a horned toad can tell you where to go and then there's scenes of him listening hearing horses by listening to the ground and and being so proud and like yeah I feel like myself when he's smiling he says in Clint's like I don't hear anything he's like you got to be an Indian to know those things the other thing is the movie does comment not only about comments about the irony and stupidity of racism and prejudice in general because Granny Sarah who's she's kind of like the foil to Granny Hawkins, because Granny Sarah, for, she's hilarious, but for a good portion of the film, she's such an asshole. Like, <laughs> she's such an asshole. She's such a little asshole, that Granny yeah. Sarah. What, um, is it, what does she say at one point when they're, when the guy's like, oh, I'm a Hoosier myself. And she's like, I don't think much of Hoosiers. Yeah, yeah, I don't care much for Hoosiers either. And he's like, whoa. He's like, whoa. Yeah, she doesn't care. <laughs> There's a couple of things she says to Lone Wadi that are fucking hilarious. But after she's saved by Josie Wales from the Comancheros and they're, they're camping down, they're eating. She like turns to Lone Wadi. She says, <laughs> she didn't say Mr. or anything. She says, Indian? <laughs> Indian? This Mr. Wales is a cold-blooded killer. He's from Missouri, where they're all known to be killers of innocent men, women, and children. But the funny fucking part is, as the movie goes on, you realize that her son, and she's proud of it, was part of Senator Lane's and Captain Terrell's fucking red legs from Kansas. And those are the ones who murdered Josie's innocent wife and child. Wow, I did not catch that. Yeah, her son was a red leg, and she's proud of it and hates people from Missouri and... And Josie Wales hears it, and he puts up with it. That's the thing. Like, could have killed her or fucking told her what was what. He doesn't bother. Right. Yeah. She does redeem herself by asking them all uh, to say. And like I said, the, the script is so tight because at some point she's like, oh, we'll sh-, when when they think that Ten Bears, when Ten Bears is captured, two of their buddies, and they're getting ready. They're like, oh, Ten Bears is going to come down and attack us. And he's he gives them all that great, if you think your back's to the wall, you got to get Plum Dog Mean. He says all this stuff. And Granny says, you know, we're really going to show those Redskins something tomorrow no offense and lone, lone wadi's like oh none taken and then when the white red legs attack them and she's like those murdering bushwhackers they're an embarrassment lone wadi gets to to give it back to her when he says oh we're really going to show those pale faces something she says no offense and she redeems herself when she says none taken right so she comes around too she comes around she totally comes around i mean she's uh, like i said mostly an asshole she's <laughs> hilariously so but she does come around and just it's, it's amazing to me because she couldn't like her if you tried uh-huh right <laughs> you know there was a part of me when they got captured by the camarcheros i was kind of like ah, i don't feel that bad for them right <laughs> <laughs> They kind of had it coming. Just saying. So. Yeah, it was a couple of things. I wanted to give a couple of special call-outs. I, I think just to mention that 
Jerry Fielding's music received an Oscar nomination, uh, and it's a very psychological and cerebral score. Like Josie Wales obviously is traumatized by the event, so when he thinks when things are going well, and he prepares to leave at the end of the movie because he can't take it. Once they got to settle and he starts to feel like home, he starts really getting. You know, he's a haunted man, but he really starts getting those bad flashbacks and those bad dreams. And he's got a, dreams of being a homesteader and he's he's got to go. So that's really good. And I also he not only you have to take into account that he's not only haunted by the death of his family, the movie and Josie is really haunted by the death of Jamie because there's the musical light motif of the song that Jamie sings to him. As he says that his father would sing when he sewed the, did the fancy needlework on his shirt. I mean, the movie in some respects really is about father and relationships, relationships between father and sons. Cause Jamie admits to Josie, who's his surrogate father, what his real father would do. And it was something that was kind of an embarrassment. He lets him in on the secret that his father, because he had no mother did the, the fancy stitching so he could, match the other guys in the troupe but the music the the rose of alabama carries throughout the entire film so the movie never forgets jamie musically yeah that's a good point and that was that was such a touching little moment of him talking about this father doing the needlework and just i could see that i mean those times it'd be really embarrassing to admit your father did that yes no yeah absolutely and it, it shows the bond that and trust that Jamie had in Josie to admit it. Yeah, and I just wanted him to live. <laughs> I'll admit it. Just when he died, I was just like, ah, oh, fuck, come on. It, yeah. You know, it hurt. It, it just definitely was a punch. Yeah, but it part of the power of the the impact of the film and the spirit. That's why it's so important that the music leitmotif that's carried through really resonates and keeps that bittersweetness going. One other thing I want to talk about in right after another scene with Jamie. How badass was it to see Clint when when they're trying to hide from the soldiers chasing after him, and Clint just makes the two horses lay down, right and. But he actually does it. There's no fucking stunt double here. Like, he actually physically gets these two horses to, like, lay down and stay down. It's just very impressive. Yeah. No, I'd agree. That was, that was a cool little moment. So, one of the things I wanted to talk about, I'm sure you have a lot to say about, is the end where Josie goes after Terrell. And he's just firing the, the guns that are there empty. So good. And it's just like, this is a guy who's just, he's at his fucking end. He's got nothing else left except for revenge. Oh, no, definitely. I mean, the final confrontation with Josie and Terrell is, it's so good. And it's so gratifying on so many levels. You have this suspenseful chase. You have, as you described, that sequence, suspenseful sequence of him cocking back and trying to shoot him with all of his guns, all four of his guns. So 24 times. And it's all done. It's all done silent and slow. There are no speeches, no war cries. It's a fight to the death in silence. And it's a biblical revenge because Tyrell is a bloody man who lived by the sword and he dies by his own sword. And yeah. the very one that physically metaphorically and spiritually scarred and created the Josie Wales we see. It's one of those things, I got to admit, if I was reading the script, I'd go, I don't know if this is going to work, but it totally works. He's he's giving everything he's got to just killing this guy. He doesn't want any discussion, no forgiveness. This guy's got to die. Oh, yeah. And he does it. And like I said, he's clicking it back. It's almost like he's in like a like he's in a, a blood lust. He's like a, he's under a spell. 
because once he when after he like grabs his hand and he forces the sword to go through Terrell, who's trying to attack him with it, and it goes through him, he kills him. He you physically see like he almost seems to wake up out of this sort of death trance that he's in. Yeah, it's primal. It's really it's fantastic. Now here's a question for you. Okay, at the at the very end of the movie, he rides off, and I have to admit, I'd like to think he goes back to the family and to Laura Lee and settles down and he's like i'm done i'm gonna be a normal human and have a life with my you know start a new family but i don't think he does yeah so this reminds me of another thing i want to talk about so yes i agree with you when i the first 250 times i watched this movie i was like he's gone baby he left he can't he can't deal with it right he left. But one of the things that either I was unaware of or had forgotten was there was a sequel that was written by right. Asa Earl Carter, The Vengeance Trail of Josie Wales. And that was not done by the Malpaso Company, which now we know all of the details about Mr. Asa Carter. I understand why. And I'm glad that Clint Eastwood didn't continue the association. But someone did. We need to touch upon the fact that we both <laughs> discovered that there was a fucking sequel to this movie that in 1986 called The Return of Josie Wales. That was written, apparently claims it was written, the script was by Forrest Carter, but I don't know how that's possible because Ozzy Carter died in 1979, three years after Outlaw Josie Wales, now that I think of it. But in any case, Michael Parks did this movie, and I sent you the email, you sent me the link to be able to <laughs> look at this thing, and I... I tried. I really tried. I gave it the old college try to watch this film. It is fucking awful. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I it's, mean, you warned me. Remember yeah, you, you I said, said it was student le student film level bad. It is. It is unbelievably bad. It is on every, every level. I know that it was not the best. It was probably off of VHS. But oh my god, it, it was worse than I actually. I spoke to you, and I remember you said something like. The movie starts like in the middle of a sentence. Yep, it does. It start. It just opens up with two people talking, and they've been talking for a while before we showed up. It's horrible. Yeah, this movie, The Return of Josie Wales. It starts in the middle. The sentence is: you turn it on, the movie starts, and the first thing you see is a guy turning away from a woman. It could have been shot in the fucking like, key room at Brooklyn College. <laughs> With you, me, or Kevin, like, lighting it, because it looks awful. <laughs> looks fucking atrocious. And he just says, I believe I will. And, like, turns around and, like, pours himself a drink. That's how it starts. But everything about it is subpar, amateurish, terrible. It's embarrassing across the board in every way. Sound, editing, staging, costuming, acting, direction, location, cinematography, the music. It is Ed Wood bad. Yep. They, they, <laughs> The staging of scenes are so awful. It's like, what the fuck? Michael Parks, I really enjoy you as an actor. You're fucking great in Tarantino's films. You're great in other stuff. He is a terrible, terrible director. Yeah. It, the movie is an in, it's an intense exercise in stamina, and I just didn't have it. I threw in a towel about 30 minutes. I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. Wow, you got that far? Yeah. I didn't get that far. I tried. There's there's a couple things I wrote that I was laughing because at some point some Mexican federalities come into the bar and I say something and in a real movie to show someone's power the bartender says something and the federalist smacks him. In a real movie he would have smacked him. It would have been loud. He would have knocked him behind and broken some bottles or something. You know, good staging. In this it 
<laughs> so I always want you to watch it when you when you can just to see this one bit, the slap, because the slap is it's like a grown man slapping another grown man with the intensity of a 10th month old baby. <laughs> it's like, <gasps> I know right. like, what the fuck was that? It's awful. And there's a scene where I wrote in my notes, it, it tries to transition and it does this weird video effect of, oh, we're going to do a transition where he like twirls around. Like I wrote, it's like a fucking, like the Brady Bunch. Like, oh, mom always said, don't throw, you know, don't play ball in the house. And like, it like oh turns gosh. around. And it's a different scene. It does that in this film. But within the same scene, it is fucking bad. So yeah. We, we, <laughs> All right. I'll uh, try to watch it again. I, I got about 10, 15 minutes in. And I was just like, I've had enough. Listen, no, you don't really need to. I maybe just for the slap scene I described because that did make me laugh. It might have been because I had some Wild Turkey 101 in me, but it was really fucking funny. But yeah, I mean, look, this movie is just not the Return of Josie Wales. The Outlaw Josie Wales is everything that <laughs> the Return of Josie Wales is not. It is phenomenal in every way. There's only one thing, and I don't know if it's a criticism. There's only one thing that I'll, I'll bring up, and it, it's something the blood. The blood is so interesting in this movie because it was the thing I noticed. I noticed from especially late sixties and seventies films, blood is not caro syrup or or something. It, it's just red paint. Like right. it's, it just seems like straight up Dutch mask, whatever. Insert painting company here. It's just red paint. This is the seventies where you have Sam Peckinpah. Peckinpah had squibs and fucking gore. There's no gore in this movie, and that's fine, but there's no actual... When people get shot, when Jamie gets shot, there's no actual hole in his jacket. Like, they don't ruin the costume. They just kind of put, like, a, like a almost, like, perfect circle of red. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a but, little weird in that point. And also, when guys get shot, they kind of fall down... They just... Conveniently, like, in a good pile. Yeah, yeah. And again, not that it does not detract from my undying devotion to this film, but I just... I just Felt I had to mention it. It is an aesthetic that carries over. I mean, Quentin Tarantino kind of puts it in his, that kind of, that particular, I almost feel like that particular shade of red is the shade of red he uses in his logos. Okay. I could be completely wrong, but, but yeah, I mean, look, to sum up the movie, Clint thinks this is an anti-war film, and I agree. Obviously, at the time of, of its release, it was obviously a metaphor for, as I said, we spoke about Vietnam War and Watergate and complete mistrust of government and authority that the double tongues, as Ten Bears calls them, do, and the complete insanity of war in general. And that's a point that is still relevant and present today. I mean, this was a Western that was both, it was a critical and commercial success, and it's pop culture and as you said before you could just watch this movie and enjoy it but what makes it special is it had something to say yeah no doubt absolutely but it wrapped it in a very smart way because it is both a revisionist western and as you brought up in, in points it, it is also a traditional western because it, it uses and plays with the conventions of the genre to achieve both aims yeah absolutely i i totally agree with you i've got nothing to add to that other than that you're dead on well thank you the other thing that i want to say that that not only is this a total kick-ass action pass western that actually has a pacifist subtext i wanted to end with comments about clint eastwood and this film in particular by orson wells oh really okay rereading the richard Schickel biography on the chapter 11 about this film i came across something apparently so orson and i looked for this on youtube and i could not find it so if you find it please tell me 
uh, and anyone who listens to this, if you find it on YouTube, please let us know. Apparently, Orson Welles was on the Merv Griffin show, and it must have been around 1982 because apparently it says that he kind of dismissed he he dismissed Firefox in the discussion, okay. but he went on to praise Clint Eastwood and especially the outlaw Jesse Wells. He said, I suppose Clint Eastwood is the most underrated director in the world today. I'm not talking about him as a star. They don't take him seriously the way they don't take beautiful girls seriously. They can't believe that they can act if they're beautiful. And he said, an actor like Clint Eastwood is such a pure type of mythic hero star in the Wayne tradition that no one is going to take him seriously as a director. But someone ought to say it. And when I saw that picture for the fourth time, I realized that it belongs with the great westerns. You know, the great Westerns of Ford and Hawks and people like that. And I take my hat off to him. I'm glad to have had the chance to say that. The fact that Orson Welles watched this movie four times. Orson Welles right. watched this movie four times and felt it necessary to talk about how great it was. So fucking great. And I just want to say I, I'm glad we had a chance. And while we may have jumped around a lot because of our love and because of our whiskey, <laughs> uh, I'm glad we had a chance to have a couple of drinks and discuss this mutual personal favorite of ours on this show with you. Yeah, I totally value this conversation. This is a lot of fun, and it's great to talk to somebody who appreciates this movie because it's not like the film nerd typical movie where you can bring it up and 10 people will go, oh yeah, I love that movie. It's one of those movies that I think over time has kind of slipped behind the radar and it's fantastic on so many levels yeah fucking classic so good all right do you think we should round it up at this point yeah okay <laughs> well i think uh i think that's all the time we have for tonight as you can hear the music is playing so that means we're running to the end if you want to have a conversation with us please visit us at the cinephiliaclounge.com where we totally appreciate any comments you might have and please don't forget to follow us on instagram we are the cinephiliac lounge and on twitter you can find us at the cinephiliac one and you can also find us on facebook at the cinephiliac lounge as one word thank you so much for joining us on our third episode this is it's been so much fun for us we hope it was fun for you next episode we're going to be discussing the 1991 ridley scott film thelma and louise thank you so much <laughs>